0: Section One of the Life of Richard Nash, Esquire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Richard Nash, Esquire, Late Master of Ceremonies at Bath, by Oliver Goldsmith, edited by Peter Cunningham. History owes its excellence more to the writer's manner than to the materials of which it is composed. The intrigues of courts, or the devastation of armies, are regarded by the remote spectator with as little attention as the squabbles of a village, or the fate of a malefactor, that fall under his own observation. The great and the little, as they have the same senses and the same affections, generally present the same picture to the hand of the draughtsman. And whether the hero or the clown be the subject of the memoir, it is only man that appears with all his native minuteness about him. For nothing very great was ever yet formed from the little materials of humanity. Thus no one can properly be said to write history but he who understands the human heart, and its whole train of affections and follies. Those affections and follies are properly the materials he has to work upon, The relations of great events may surprise indeed, they may be calculated to instruct those very few who govern the million beneath, but the generality of mankind find the most real improvement from relations which are levelled to the general surface of life, which tell not how men learned to conquer, but how they endeavoured to live, not how they gained the shout of the admiring crowd, but how they acquired the esteem of their friends and acquaintance. Every man's own life would, perhaps, furnish the most pleasing materials for history, if he only had candour enough to be sincere, and skill enough to select such parts as once making him more prudent, might serve to render his readers more cautious. There are few who do not prefer a page of Montaigne, or colley who candidly tell us what they thought of the world, and the wild thought of them, to the more stately memoirs and transactions of Europe where we see kings pretending to immortality, that are now almost forgotten, and statesmen planning frivolous negotiations that scarcely outlive the signing. It were to be wished that ministers and kings were left to write their own histories, they are truly useful to few but themselves. But for men who are contented with more humble stations, I fancy such truths only are serviceable as may conduct them safely through life that knowledge which we can turn to our real benefit should be most eagerly pursued, treasures which we cannot use, but little increase the happiness or even the pride of the possessor. I profess to write the history of a man placed in the middle ranks of life, of one whose vices and virtues were open to the eye of the most undiscerning spectator, who was placed in public view, without power to repress censure, or command adulation who had too much merit not to become remarkable, yet too much folly to arrive at greatness. I attempt the character of one who was just such a man as probably you or I may be, but with this difference, that he never performed an action which the world did not know, or ever formed a wish which he did not take pains to divulge. In short, I have chosen to write the life of the noted Mr. Nash, as it will be the delineation of a mind without disguise, Of a man ever assiduous without industry, and pleasing to his superiors without any superiority of genius or understanding. Yet, if there be any who think the subject of too little importance to command attention, and who would rather gaze at the actions of the great than be directed in guiding their own, I have one undeniable claim to their attention. Mr. Nash was, himself, a king." In this particular perhaps no biographer has been so happy as I. They who are for a delineation of men and manners may find some satisfaction that way, and those who delight in adventures of kings and queens may perhaps find their hopes satisfied in another. It is a matter of very little importance who were the parents, or what was the education, of a man who owed so little of his advancement to either. He seldom boasted of family or learning, and his father's name and circumstances were so little known that Dr. Cheyne used frequently to say that Nash had no father. The Duchess of Marlborough, one day rallying him in public company upon the obscurity of his birth, compared him to Chill Blass, who was ashamed of his father. "'No, madam,' replied Nash. "'I seldom mention my father in company, not because I have any reason to be ashamed of him, but because he has some reason to be ashamed of me.' However, though such anecdotes be immaterial, to go on in the usual course of history, it may be proper to observe that Richard Nash, Esquire, the subject of this memoir, was born in the town of Swansea, in Glamorganshire, on the 18th of October, in the year 1674. His father was a gentleman, whose principal income arose from a partnership in a glass house. His mother was niece to Colonel Poyer, who was killed by Oliver Cromwell for defending Pembroke Castle against the rebels. He was educated under Mr. Maddox at Camarthen School, and from thence sent to Jesus College, Oxford, in order to prepare him for the study of the law. His father had strained his little income to give his son such an education, but, from the boy's natural vivacity, he hoped a recompense from his future preferment. In college, however, he soon showed that, though much might be expected from his genius, nothing could be hoped from his industry. A mind strongly turned to pleasure always is first seen at the university. There the youth first finds himself freed from the restraint of tutors, and being treated by his friends in some measure as a man, assumes the passions and desires of riper age, and discovers in the boy what are likely to be the affections of his maturity. The first method Mr. Nash took to distinguish himself at college was not by application to study, but by his assiduity to intrigue. In the neighbourhood of every university there are girls who, with some beauty, some coquetry, and little fortune, lie upon the watch for every raw youth more inclined to make love than to study. Our hero was quickly caught, and went through all the mazes and adventures of a college intrigue before he was seventeen. He offered marriage, the offer was accepted, but the whole affair coming to the knowledge of his tutors, his happiness, or perhaps his future misery, was prevented, and he was sent home from college, with necessary advice to him, and proper instructions to his father. When a man knows his power over the fair sex, he generally commences their admirer for the rest of life. That triumph which he obtains over one only makes him the slave of another, and thus he proceeds conquering and conquered to the closing of the scene. The army seemed the most likely profession in which to display this inclination for gallantry. He therefore purchased a pair of colours, commenced a professed admirer of the sex, and dressed to the very edge of his finances. But the life of a soldier is more pleasing to the spectator at a distance than to the person who makes the experiment. Nash soon found that a red coat alone would never succeed-that the company of the fair sex is not to be procured without expense-and that his scanty commission could never procure him the proper reimbursements He found too that the profession of arms required attendance and duty and often encroached upon those hours he could have wished to dedicate to softer purposes In short he soon became disgusted with the life of a soldier-quitted the army, entered his name as a student in the temple books, and here went to the very summit of second-rate luxury. Though very poor, he was very fine. He spread the little gold he had in a most ostentatious manner, and though the gilding was but thin, he laid it on as far as it would go. They who know the town cannot be unacquainted with such a character as I describe. One who, though he may have dined in private upon a banquet served cold from a cook's shop, she'll dress at six for the side-box. One of those whose wants are only known to their laundress and tradesmen, and their fine clothes to half the nobility, who spend more in chair-hire than housekeeping, and prefer a bow from a lord to a dinner from a commoner. In this manner Nash spent some years about town, till at last his genteel appearance, his constant civility, and still more his assiduity, gained him the acquaintance of several persons qualified to lead the fashion, both by birth and fortune. To gain the friendship of the young nobility little more is requisite than much submission and very fine clothes. Dress has a mechanical influence upon the mind, and we are naturally awed into respect and esteem at the elegance of those who even our reason would teach us to condemn. He seemed early sensible of human weakness in this respect, He brought a person genteelly dressed to every assembly, he always made one of those who are called very good company, and assurance gave him an air of elegance and ease. When King William was upon the throne, Mr. Nash was a member of the Middle Temple. It had been long customary for the inns of court to entertain our monarchs upon their accession to the throne, or some such remarkable occasion, with a revel and pageant. In the earlier periods of our history, poets were the conductors of these entertainments, plays were exhibited, and complimentary verses were then written, but by degrees the pageant alone was continued, Sir John Davis being the last poet that wrote verses upon such an occasion, in the reign of James I. This ceremony, which has been at length totally discontinued, was last exhibited in honour of King William, and Mr. Nash was chosen to conduct the whole with proper decorum. He was then but a very young man, but we see at how early an age he was thought proper to guide the amusements of his country, and be the arbiter elegantiarum of his time, we see how early he gave proofs of that spirit of regularity, for which he afterwards became famous, and showed an attention to those little circumstances, of which, though the observance be trifling, the neglect has often interrupted men of the greatest abilities in the progress of their fortunes. In conducting this entertainment, Nash had an opportunity of exhibiting all his abilities, and King William was so well satisfied with his performance that he made him an offer of knighthood. This, however, he thought proper to refuse, which in a person of his disposition seems strange. "'Please, your majesty,' replied he, when the offer was made him, "'if you intend to make me a knight, I wish it may be one of your poor knights of Windsor, and then I shall have a fortune at least able to support my title.' yet we do not find that the king took the hint of increasing his fortune. Perhaps he could not, he had at that time numbers to oblige, and he never cared to give money without important services. But though Nash acquired no riches by his late office, yet he gained many friends, or, what is more easily obtained, many acquaintances, who often answer the end as well. In the populous city where he resided, To be known was almost synonymous with being in the road to fortune. How many little things do we see, without merit, or without friends, push themselves forward into public notice, and, by self-advertising, attract the attention of the day! The wise despise them, but the public are not all wise. Thus they succeed, rise upon the wing of folly or of fashion, and by their success give a new sanction to effrontery. But beside his assurance Mister Nash had in reality some merit and some virtues; he was if not a brilliant at least an easy companion; he never forgot good manners even in the highest warmth of familiarity; and as I hinted before, never went in a dirty shirt to disgrace the table of his patron or his friend. These qualifications might make the furniture of his head but for his heart, that seemed an assemblage of the virtues which display an honest, benevolent mind, with the vices which spring from too much good nature. He had pity for every creature's distress, but wanted prudence in the application of his benefits. He had generosity for the wretched in the highest degree, at a time when his creditors complained of his justice. He often spoke falsehoods, but never had any of his harmless tales tinctured with malice. End of section one Recording by Cory Samuel,